When Bill said that there are a few of us gathered here, operative word few, it is members of staff that were necessary to open the church this morning, and a few of our spouses came along for moral support. But believe me, in this large sanctuary, we are socially distant as we should be. In January, Bill conceived of a Lenten sermon series to consider the defects of Jesus, those character traits that society tells us we should avoid if in fact we want to be successful, and yet these are the character traits of the way in which God intends good life to flourish. At that time, I said, I want to take risk-taking. And throughout the past months, my experience from corporate in risk-taking leads me to believe, as I've read story after story, that Jesus was not a risk-taker. He and his ministry was purely reckless. I know that if he went to corporate for a risk review before launching any project, he would have absolutely been shut down. And so it's the recklessness of his ministry that I think we can consider even in these trying times. And it's been in these uh, unprecedented events of the last week that I kept considering, should I change my topic? Should I change my scripture passage? Reckless, it doesn't feel very safe right now. Fear not is spoken over 300 times in scripture and our faith history is one of exile and plague and rebuilding. So what I will commend to you in the weeks and months ahead, turn to scripture. We have a faith history that tells us God's goodness and love endures and we too will thrive. But I kept returning to the story in Luke and like a kaleidoscope with every turn of events as I turned the story over and over, I kept seeing the divine and human relationship unfold in beautiful ways. What we might think of as Jesus's recklessness is actually something for us to behold and embody and particularly in this time of uncertainty. And so before I turn to scripture, let's rely again on the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, truth divine, fall upon our hearts. Silence in us any voice but yours, and open these words of scripture to startle us with your enduring truth of our lives and the promise of our future. And may we always be confident to follow your son. Amen. In Luke's gospel, we learn that into the chaos of human brutality or Roman brutality, a child is born. God's Son becomes the animating force to heal the sick, restore clarity of vision, and break down all the barriers that people have built. Amid pervasive fear, Jesus methodically approaches the common folk to reverse the established order with his saving grace. In the place of fear, he brings love. Evident in a sermon that he preaches to the crowd in a Galilean plain as recorded by Luke, the poor are blessed, and woe to you who think you are rich. Those who are excluded, hated, and reviled are really people that are blessed. And woe to you who are filled because you will go hungry. And pushing even further to uproot us, Jesus calls, I quote, anyone who will listen to love your enemies and hate those and love those who hate you. Shortly after the sermon, Jesus and his disciples sail across the Sea of Galilee, going someplace none of them have ever been before. And in the midst of the sea, they encounter a storm, and with just a breath, Jesus brings calm. And listen to what happens next as they land on the other side as I read from the eighth chapter of Luke. 
When they arrived in the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, Jesus stepped out on land, and a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time, this man had worn no clothes, did not live in a house, but lived in the caves. And when he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted in a loud voice, Jesus, what have you to do with me, Son of God of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me, for Jesus has commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged him to let them enter the swine, and so Jesus gave them his permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. When the swine herds saw what had happened, they ran off and told in the city and the country. And then the people came out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone was now sitting at Jesus' feet, and he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. The people were afraid. Then the people of all the surrounding country asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got in the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone had begged that he might return with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. Declare how much good God has done for you. So he went proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Here ends our reading. Imagine taking on the task to teach some of the most accomplished athletes in professional sports new practices to improve their ability to win. And by the most accomplished, I mean Kobe Bryant, Michael Jackson, and their teammates. I know everyone's missing basketball right now, so we got a story about basketball. This man who took on this insurmountable task, it would seem, was George Mumford. He persuaded these titans to move beyond a mindset of seeking to fiercely demolish their opponent to instead play fueled by their love for the game. So what do you say to change someone's mindset? Mumford started carefully, and he promised that they could get in the zone, and they could play with the flow. He knows that that's what athletes think about, and that's what mattered. And then Mumford introduced new daily habits. He taught the daily habit to become so mindful of your body and breath that you literally slow down time. You slow down time between stimulus and response so that you're fully aware and you got this all going on. You're fine. Teaching in the secular arena, he speaks in a way that resonates with the street but yet is steeped in scripture. Needless to say, he caught my attention when he said to them, know the truth and the truth will set you free. After you hone your mind to be fully present, you arrive at the free throw line and you are literally deaf to the roaring crowd. And he quotes one of my favorite Psalms by saying, be still and know that I am God. He describes also listening to the still small voice as he is coaching these athletic gods to become vulnerable to a higher power. And gaining their trust, he then becomes really blunt. And he says to them, don't be hating. Don't be hating, or in non-street terms, don't be 
a hater. Hate does not win. Love and compassion is what will win. Don't hate the other and don't hate yourself for a prior mistake. The here and now is different from the past. If you've made a mistake, don't hate yourself, don't hate the other, just pick up and begin again and be fully present where you are right now. Let your love of your game and your desire to merely connect the ball with the hoop, that's all that matters. And when you do that, everything else just kind of fades away. In a lecture filmed before Kobe's death, Mumford glows as he describes the day that Kobe turned his body and mind to just love the game. And it's at that game he scored more points in the first half than he ever had before for the Lakers. Now, in my normal exuberant way of bubbling within when an idea resonates, I bounded down the street telling stories of Phil Jackson, the Lakers, and Kobe's while walking with my husband early one morning with the dogs. And my husband, in his calm way, he said, oh, honey, those of us who followed the Bulls for decades, we know about Phil Jackson and his mindfulness. You're a little late to the game. Perhaps. But in this game of life that we are in today, I think we need to hear, don't be hatin' again. With a focus on the good, we can move from thrashing within and fearing the chaos of the other to instead rest in the eye of the hurricane. Because we're in the middle of that hurricane, we see blue sky, and we can collect our thoughts and our being, and we can make a plan, and we can know how to go forward. Mumford placed alongside those daily drills and endurance training the practices to tune your mind to the good. Don't be hatin'. You can't hate your way to excellence. Fear doesn't build a darn thing. And when you enter the game, keep your eye on what matters. In the face of this elusive virus, may we keep our hearts and minds and our entire being focused on God and our love for the others. We have the power to create space and love and harmony, and we can create a whole new expanse of time and calm. Now, Jesus sought to change the way we engage in the game of life. This most unlikely carpenter brought the tools to build love against what was known as the weapons of destruction. Where others see risk, Jesus imagines a future. As the tribe builds walls, Jesus breaks down barriers. Others hoard, Jesus provides. When someone wants an enemy, Jesus creates a friend. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of a man known only as the Gerasene demoniac. This is a man no longer fit for human companionship. He's naked, he's good as dead, and he's living in a tomb. And it's Jesus' desire to love this exiled man and to teach us what love looks like. It's that desire in Jesus that compels him and all of his followers to sail across a turbulent sea into an unknown land. He restores this man to, quote, in his right mind, so he is able to sit at Jesus' feet like the other disciples and just learn. He's clothed. He can return to his city, and everything about his life that was chaotic has been reversed and is restored to life. 
But no wonder the people in the area of the Gerasenes feared Jesus and they told him to leave. Reversal implies chaos. No one wants the established order to be blown up and no one wants to be vulnerable. So twice in this story, we understand that their fear consumes them. When we are most afraid is exactly when we start to fight or we retreat or we exclude and anyone can begin to look like the enemy. At the opposite, we have to imagine that the man whom Jesus saved found fellowship with Jesus's disciples because each one of them had had an experience of Jesus calling them out of their prior life. So imagine this man is now finding a new community that truly gets it to go back to street slang. Those people that are following Jesus, they get it. Each one of those men and women whom Jesus had called found their lives upended. From outward standards, nothing for them grew easier or more stable. They all left home and trade, they became itinerant in Galilee, and they followed him into places that had always been thought of as threatening. How foolish could they be? And yet, no one ever wanted to leave Jesus aside, because in Jesus, reckless love is what abounds, and that's why, 21 centuries later, we continue to cling to such reckless love. In less than six minutes, a woman by the name of Amy Craig can run a mile, and then another mile, and then another mile. For 26 miles, she can run in less than six minutes. In other words, Craig is an elite distance runner. In the 2012 Olympic trials, she missed the team by one minute and 12 seconds. Fourth place sent her home. In the 2016 trials, at the midpoint of the race, she starts to, as she describes, bonk despite having a very strong start. And that is when one of her very toughest rivals, Shalane Flanagan, slowed down during Flanagan's own race to say, we're gonna to stick together and we're gonna finish. Gavin Kildruff studies rivalries as a professor of management at New York University. And he studies across a wide variety of industries and particularly throughout sports. And he finds that motivation is not a rational process. In any rivalry, there are opportunities to compete and cooperate. And his science and his research shows that you can do both effectively and both parties will improve. Supportive rivalries kick into place when you're working for something larger than just your own individual success. What matters is the order in which you do them. In that race, Flanagan brought Craig back from bonking and miles later, as Flanagan started to fade, Craig was the one that turned around and said, I'm slowing my pace. And she ran with her until she knew that she had to kick it in. And that's when she said, you've got this. I'm going to see you at the finish line. Craig won the trial. And Flanagan? Craig's promise to see her at the finish line motivated her. Flanagan took third, and they both qualified for the Olympics. They continued to train together hard, and they competed every day in training. And then on the world stage in Rio, they finished less than three minutes apart. At the end of the day, athletic competitions are a zero-sum game with one person or one team taking gold. 
but competing and excelling are fueled by feelings and relationships that create far more than endures on that particular day. Competition and cooperation are what rises, raises everyone's boat, even the most privileged and tenacious. And Flanagan's influence persists today in a new wave of runners. At the 2020 time trials in Atlanta earlier this month, the 139th seed Molly Seidel, who works as a barista, and 10th seed Alfina Talamuk had six miles to go. But at mile 20, they faced a 20 mile hour wind gust and a 1300 foot ascent. And Talamuk just simply said, let's go. They finished within seconds of each other, qualifying for the team. And that's when now Coach Flanagan wrote on social media, if you're lonely, if you're lonely at the top, you did it wrong. We do this together. You see, we don't do this alone. This meaning the game of life. The superstars of center court excel by loving more and not hating. They create calm by becoming vulnerable to a higher power. Elite runners find speed and a capacity when training for each other and for the good of each other. And Jesus brought the church into being by calling each of his disciples and each of us away from our self-centered lives to care for the welfare of others. Reckless love lures us into a world of hope that is beyond any human construction, and it is never divided between those that are able and those that are vulnerable. We don't survive a pandemic alone. We do so by honoring all of God's children. To love each other calls us to disrupt our own routines, slow down, and join together, particularly online. We closed in-person worship to create solidarity with the frail and the strong, the young and the old. No one will be the other. No one will be left behind. Was it reckless? No. This is how the body of the Christ, this is how the church worships. We worship together. Sure, we're homesick right now. It's a little odd driving around on the streets or walking the dog. We are homesick for what was. But we will move forward and we will create a home again with the same love that Jesus brought. And the church will always endure. The very nature of divine love might look reckless. And the man from the garrisons, no longer called the demoniac, receives the task from Jesus to go and tell people in the city and the country what love looks like. And this, my friends, is the truth. Amen.